<laughs> um, so brethren, we are addressing matters of need concerning this question of church membership. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, as we've been preparing for our new members class, um, we have, um, Scott and I have been talking about some of the things that we will be covering in those classes, and we talked about how it is that a lot of these lessons are very applicable and needful, really, for everybody. There's a sense in which we could all take a refresher course from time to time to review matters of importance together. And I would also say that uh, when we went through our series on the name Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we took 10 messages uh, we uh, occupied 10 mes messages to cover the subject of the church. And I have to say that even with 10 messages, there were many, many things that we did not cover. Uh, we didn't talk about elder and deacon qualifications. <clears throat> and by the way, that's an important subject to cover. But uh, we didn't really take the time to cover that. Uh, the subject of church discipline we didn't cover. The importance of practicing the one another's, again, we touched on some of those things, but really very little. Uh, ministry to widows, the body dynamic of the church as a family because we're the household of God. There are layers and layers of things that we could have gotten into. The series could have gotten much longer, which I even said at the time, but we just really summarized some basic things in those messages. And even last Lord's Day, we, in beginning this summary of the subject of membership and what it means to be a member of the body of Christ and how we're to in, 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 uh, conduct ourselves within the church, we really began this last Lord's Day by talking about the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table is actually very, very important, and we don't want to make the Lord's table some appendage that we attach to the end of the service, that we just rush through it and fail to give it the time and attention that it does deserve. In many respects, the church at Corinth was abusing the Lord's table, and this is why we went to and went through the three warnings that the Apostle Paul gives to the church at Corinth concerning their abuse and pollution of the Lord's table. And last time I concluded with a, a remarkable quote from John Owen, where he said this, and he talked about the benefit of the failure of the church at Corinth, the fact that their mistakes, their failures, really provide an opportunity for us to learn. So he said this, he says, I do not, I dare not, I ought not to bless God for their sin, yet I bless God for his providence. Had it not been for their disorders, we had all of us much been in darkness. The correction of their disorders contains the principal rule for the church for church communion and the administration of this sacrament that we have in the whole scripture, which might have been hid from us, but that God suffered them to fall into them on purpose that through their fall in them and by them, he might instruct his church in all ages to the end of the world. And this is the case. As we reviewed the failures and the mistakes of the church at Corinth, we learned a great deal about how we should regard highly the Lord's table. In fact, the Apostle Paul, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, remind the Corinthians of the fact that they were failing to learn from the lessons of history, wherein the Israelites, through their rebellion, many of them were laid low in the wilderness. And so he says this, and these things happen as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. 
So when we go to biblical history and we see mistakes, we need to look at those mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And that's the point that John Owen is making. And this was really the foundation of our study last time. The principal text that we considered last time comes to us in verses 16 through 22 of 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a koinonia, that is a sharing in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a koinonia sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean then, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become koinonia, shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Of course we do in the case of such demonic activity. Paul's warning against this matter of engaging in a fellowship with demons reminds us of the importance of what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's table because we are partaking of a special communion with Christ. Now, this is not the to be considered in the extreme version of things as we talked about last time. The uh, Roman Catholic uh, church teaches that the actual elements are transformed into literal flesh and blood. Even Luther retained some of this uh, superstition where he uh, advanced a, a version of things called consubstantiation where the substance of the body and blood of Christ are somehow present alongside the substance and the bread of the wine. Again, the real point, I believe, of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is to help us to understand that when we come to the Lord in this Lord's table, we are enjoying a special and spiritual communion with Christ. And by partaking of the elements, we are confessing together before him that we have appropriated by faith his sacrifice, which he made on our behalf. The importance of the instructions that we consider together are that we must remember that we must be careful not to pollute this table by introducing sin into it, therefore introducing the leaven of malice and wickedness, as the Apostle Paul warns. For them, by failing to have a high regard for the Lord's table, and by failing to examine themselves carefully before coming to the table, he says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, meaning, meaning that there are some who passed away. God takes the Lord's table seriously, and so should we. And so again, this is why we took the time last time to talk about why this is so. We could spend a lot more time on this, but I just want us to understand together that these are crucial matters that the body of Christ needs to consider the Lord's table is crucial. It is an important time for us to come together to contemplate our need to confess sins and to come before God without the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now this morning, what I would like to do is to talk about one of the things that I didn't really get to in our series on the church, 
And that is to talk about what a spirit-filled church looks like. Over the years, I've had to address a number of um, matters that have plagued uh, the church concerning confusion about what spirit-filled living looks like. I believe that the charismatic movement has produced a great deal of confusion regarding this matter. But it's a very important subject that we find in Scripture where we see descriptions of what spirit-filled living actually looks like. And one of the great passages, one of the great uh, books of the Bible that covers this so well, I think, is the book of Ephesians. Because Paul talks about the manner in which we were redeemed and how it is that God foreordained our salvation. And he talks about in chapters 1 through 3, the manner in which God bestowed his loving redemption upon us. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he then talks about what we should be like and how we should conduct ourselves as people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now this is a very important concept. And what he helps us to understand is, is that as spirit-filled people, as we submit to the leading of the Spirit and submit to the authority of God's Word, we will be a people who preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God creates unity. We don't make it. He makes it, but we're to be the preservers of the unity that he makes. And so he begins this argument in chapter 4 of Ephesians where he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, that's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the bond of irenes, peace, peace, irenes. This is the the idea of taking two puzzle pieces and bringing them together in perfect harmony. That's what we're called to do. That's what the Spirit produces in the lives of God's people, whereby we labor together in order to preserve that unity, that peace that God makes. And I say that God is the maker of unity. This is the other component of this idea that's so important. For a body to be unified really is an expression of God's own nature. God himself is unified in all aspects of his essential nature and his will. God is not the author of confusion, the Apostle Paul had to tell the church at Corinth. That's a self-evident truth, we would say. But we have to understand that all that God produces is an expression of his unity, his unity within his essential being and his will. And so Paul then says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And even though the gifts of the spirit that are given to the church are many and multifaceted and they vary, that variance doesn't produce confusion. It works together to produce harmony and unity. This is the key argument that Paul advances in these chapters, chapters 4 through 6. In fact, throughout all of chapter 6, he talks about that unity being expressed in the matter of maturity rather than immaturity. He talks about how it is that we have a new self that is brought about by the leading of the Spirit. And he talks about how we're to conduct ourselves as being members of one another in the body of Christ. Then in the next chapter, chapter 5, he talks about how we're to be imitators of God and how our conduct is to be seen both in the home and in the world. 
And then the sixth chapter basically talks about how it is that we're called as the soldiers of Christ and that we're to take up the full armor of God and advance the truth of God in this world of darkness. Now, we're not going to go through all of that, obviously. In fact, I'm just going to cover one verse this morning, or we'll look at one verse as our principal text. The text I want us to look at here that will help us to think about our conduct in the body of Christ especially as how, how we speak to one another, is verse 25 of chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. It's a very simple verse, but it is loaded and packed with great and important truth. Paul says in verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, And then he gives a reason, for we are members of one another. Simple verse, lots of truth in it. It is packed full, and we'll just summarize the truth of this verse here this morning. But first of all, it's very simple. The outline is very simple. We're called to be truth tellers. That should be self-evident from the text. We're to be truth tellers. It's a basic concept. That'll be our first analysis of this verse. But the second point is really deeply tied to the first. In order to be truth tellers, we also have to be a people who forsake falsehood. They, they go together, in other words. It's not enough just to go around and say that I'm telling the truth, but if we're also blending in falsehoods into our truth, we're no longer telling the truth. So in order to be truth tellers, we have to be a people who mortify and forsake falsehood. That's why he says, laying aside falsehood, then he says, speak truth. Thirdly and finally, we'll talk about our calling as members of Christ's body and how we have We have a relationship with one another in Christ that requires us to act like this, to conduct ourselves in this manner. So again, I just confess to you at the outset that this is just going to be a summary, but let's consider together here this remarkable verse and consider the great lessons that it has for us. So first of all, our calling is to be truth tellers. We're called to be truth tellers. So again, Paul says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. And then he gives the explanatory conjunction, the Greek uh, conjunction, uh, hati, for, for, here's the reason, for we are members of one another. So Paul is basically saying, you know what, we're members of one another in the body of Christ, and therefore we have this responsibility to forsake falsehood and speak the truth to one another. That's the idea. You see the words one another at the end of the verse. That's what's called a reciprocal pronoun. I think I've mentioned this already once before, but this is an important word, and it carries a very important idea. It bears the idea of reciprocity. Reciprocity. I have an obligation to serve you in the same manner that you have to serve me in the body of Christ. There's no distinction. Reciprocal pronouns, which are found throughout the Bible, are often used to speak of the equality 
of our value in Christ and our responsibility to minister to one another with no distinction. And this is important because this concept of reciprocity is rooted in our union with Christ. Paul says this in Romans 12, 5, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually, he says, members of one another. You know, it would be impossible to go through a membership class without talking about this idea of our reciprocity. Our our equal value in Christ and our equal responsibility to serve one another. Again, it's the golden rule. I want to serve you, honor you, and, and minister to you in the same way that I would want you to serve and minister to me. Based upon what? The word of God and nothing else. We owe it to each other to do this is the idea. Why? Because we are, what, members of one another. That's the reciprocity that is actually foundational to the entire verse. You take that reciprocity out and the the whole verse starts to fall apart a little bit. So Paul says, he begins with the word therefore, which is an indication of the fact that he's continuing his argument. He says, therefore speak truth. Well, therefore what? What was he talking about? Well, he talked about in the prior verse how it is that God created us in such a way that we have been made to be truth tellers. He says this, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's how God made us. He created us in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, we're to be what? Truth tellers. This is how God redeemed us. This is how we're to speak. We're to speak the truth. God established the unity of the church wherein there is just one body and one spirit, just as also we were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all. We just covered that. That unity of the truth that we have in the, in the word of God, we have been created in that truth. We have been redeemed in that truth. The very gospel itself is the basis of our salvation. And as those who have been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, we are therefore to use our lips, our mouths, for this one purpose of speaking Nothing but the truth. This is why we covered Psalm 1 this morning, even in our time of worship and singing. By the way, I've got to say, it's such a rich blessing to sing the Psalms. I, I, the, the book of Psalms is the inspired hymnal in the Bible, and so to sing these Psalms, at least paraphrastically, is such a rich opportunity. But think of the contemplation of Psalm 1. And think about this idea of being redeemed by God in his righteousness and and in his truth such that we're now truth tellers. Think about the blessedness of the man who walks not in falsehood, but in the truth. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of leets, scoffers. That is, those who use their mouths for derision and destruction. That blessed man says, I'll have nothing to do with that. Why? 
What is his fixation? What is his pathway? His pathway is truth. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does what? He meditates day and night. Brethren, we have been created in righteousness and in the holiness of the truth so that we would walk in that truth and speak that truth and forsake falsehood as we do. That is Psalm 1. That is the blessed man in Psalm 1. And in order to be truth tellers, we must be absorbed with the truth rather than falsehood each and every day. By the way, there are several parallel texts that talk about this idea of our using our lives, using our mouths, using our lips in order to speak truth rather than falsehood. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, uh, 15 and verse 14. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself am, all, am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish or encourage one another. In other words, he's saying, you know, you have all the knowledge that you need. You have all that you need pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of God. And you're not just keeping that to yourself, but you're speaking that truth to one another. Encouraging and admonishing one another in that truth. What a remarkable commendation that is that Paul gave to the church at Rome. And there's the language of reciprocity. He says that you are able also to admonish what? One another. Alleluus, the reciprocal pronoun. So everybody in the church was equally committed to one another in this matter of mutual exhortation in the truth. Here's another text, and I, I've briefly summarized this, but, but it's worth our examination, further examination in light of our examination of Ephesians 4.25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another, there we go again, reciprocal pronoun, Alleluus, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We don't know our day of departure, but we know the Lord's returning, and we're to use each day well, knowing that we don't have the promise of tomorrow. So what do we do? We consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So we've talked up about we've talked about this verse a little bit. He's saying that we're not to forsake the assembling of together. That's actually point number one. The first point of being uh, together on the Lord's Day is to show up, right? That's what he's saying. And by the way, this is an important instruction here in Hebrews because this generation of believers and this particular community of people were hotly persecuted. So the temptation of staying home in order to stay safe and, and, and not be subject to persecution by those who oppose the church, that temptation would have been very high. To say, you know what, uh, yeah, I'm not going that, to, that, that's dangerous to go to church. Maybe I shouldn't go today. He's saying, no, you don't forsake the assembly of the saints. But then he says, when you're here, this is what you do. You stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So I've talked about that a little bit. That word stimulate comes from the Greek word, the root word, odzuno, which speaks of a sharp instrument. 
as in the case of a cattle prod. How do you get a big animal to move? Yeah, cattle prod it. You give it a little swift uh, prod to the back end and suddenly that animal that doesn't want to move will move. Now, so brethren, this is just really uh, an interesting word and we're not suggesting a literal application of this, but the idea here is, is that we would speak to one another in such a way that we're helping each other to move in a direction and that is the direction of love and good deeds. That's the idea. And love and good deeds, that's a, a very general way of saying, listen, we should be engaged in living out our lives in such a way that we're manifesting the love of Christ, engaging in deeds that honor Christ with one another. But here's the real key ingredient to this verse. He says that in order to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, he says at the beginning of the verse, he says, let us consider how to do this. Kata noeo bears the idea of engaging the mind in a regular sense in terms of this matter of thinking about how I can encourage other people, other brethren, to this matter of love and good deeds. That takes thought. That takes meditation. That takes contemplation of the mind. That means that we come to church thinking about how to help others. This is the idea. Brethren, let me say it this way. One of the most destructive things that I've seen in the modern church is this disease of passivity where people come to church and they're just shoppers with a shopping cart. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm very particular as I'm shopping for stuff, if I'm getting groceries uh, or, or whatever, you know, there are things that I'll put in the cart and I'll throw it back out because maybe I decided I didn't like it or I'll look at the ingredients and, oh, uh, yeah, maybe I like, no, I don't like that. It's got this particular ingredient in it. Things will come in and out of the cart quickly based upon all kinds of criteria. When people come to the church and they have this kind of a shopping cart mentality, there's a danger that comes with this where you say, well, you know what, I really didn't like this about the service. I didn't, that song, I didn't really like it. I don't like the melody to it. Or, you know, I, I don't like, uh, um, I didn't like that particular illustration that the preacher used. If you come with a passive shopping cart mentality about what you're getting out of things, you're going to be an unhappy person. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, come to church, not with a shopping cart, with things to put in it, but come to the, the church with a bag of whereby you're just giving things out. You're a giver. You're one who is sharing with other people exhortation and encouragement using your mouth in order to speak truth and in order to exhort one another to love and good deeds. That's a person who comes with an agenda to give and to bless others. Those who do this will be blessed. But those who come to church with a passive attitude and just saying, well, I, I like this, and I didn't like that, you'll never be happy. Years ago, when I was first started off in the ministry, I had a, uh, there was a lady in the church, she would come up to me rather dutifully after every sermon, and sometimes she had a happy face and sometimes she had a frown. And I never knew which it was going to be any, on any given Sunday. But sometimes she would come up to me and she'd be all happy. And she would say, you know what, that, that message made me happy. 
I said, okay, uh, what did you learn from it? And I talked to her and tried to understand what does she mean by happy, because that could mean a lot of different things. And there were some Sundays she'd come to me and she'd say, you know what, that made me sad, that sermon. And after a few iterations of this, I began to realize that she's not really listening to the sermon in the sense of saying, what am I learning from this and how do I need to live in view of what I'm learning? She was really just being emotive about it and just talking to me about whether things just, again, made her happy or sad. And I, I ended up having to let her know, I, I, I don't preach in order to move emotions. I want to preach truth and what God does in your heart and mind in terms of your emotions, that's between you and the Lord. And by the way, if you're sad as a result of the preaching of the word of God, you need to think about why, right? Because when we go through the word of God, there are times when we're sad. We read the scriptures and say, you know what, Lord, I fall short of the standard. But as I feel conviction about that, and I feel the sadness that comes with that conviction, I need to think about how I need to correct my way so that I would be a better disciple of Christ. Brethren, there are preachers who try to move the emotions of people, and this is not really the task of the preacher. The, the task of the preacher is to preach the truth of the word of God so that we all would be a people who speak truth one to another because we are members of one another. But this then brings us to our second point. Paul doesn't jump into this idea of speaking each one of us with, one, with our neighbors, speaking the truth with one, one another. He doesn't jump into that right away. He begins with this description of the importance of laying aside falsehood. And so this is our second point of observation. In order to be truth tellers, we have to be a people who forsake and mortify falsehood. This is a part of the package. You can't be a truth teller unless you're forsaking falsehoods. And you'll notice that in this verse that seven of the words are in all caps. Why is this? Whenever you see words in a verse that are all caps, that's an indication of the fact that you have another text of scripture being quoted. In this case, it is an Old Testament text that Paul is quoting from the book of Zechariah. Now this is important because both the books of Zechariah and Haggai were written by these prophets in order to exhort the people of God to carry on the work of God, in their case, in terms of the rebuilding of the temple. That rebuilding work was set aside for a time, and so the Lord used these prophets to revive their, the people of God to this duty, to this labor of building the temple, rebuilding the temple. And so the particular section of scripture from which Paul quotes comes in Zechariah chapter 8 where the Lord says this for thus says the Lord of hosts this is verse 14 of Zechariah 8 just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath says the Lord of hosts and I have not relented so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah do not fear these are the things which you should do Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. 
Also let none of you devise evil in your heart against, against another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. This is important. Not only does God command his people to speak truth to one another, but he commands them to forsake the devising of evil and the practice of perjury or the bearing of false witness. Now, I have a question for you. Would it not have been enough if the Lord just said, well, just speak the truth? I mean, think about it. If, if all you're going to do is speak the truth, then that's all that's on the plate is truth. But no, it's not enough just to say that. Time and again in Scripture, we're enjoined not just to do that which is good, but we're also enjoined to forsake and mortify that which is evil. All through the Bible, we see this. I would say that we could be told just to speak the truth if we were sin, uh, sinless creatures, but we're not. We have to be told to forsake falsehood and lies. I don't know if you pay attention to health inspection ratings when you go into a restaurant. I tend to. If I come into a restaurant and the rating's pretty low, I just turn around and go somewhere else. Um, although I don't really trust those ratings that much either. Um, but, uh, but have you noticed that some higher-end restaurants now, uh, they get very, very particular about talking about where they get their ingredients and the nature of the ingredients. And so they'll talk about the fact that their produce is all organic or their beef is all grass-fed or their, free, uh, their chickens that they serve are free-range chickens. So, you know, before you eat the animal, you'll, uh, you're glad to know that it had a nice life before they slaughtered it for your consumption. And so they'll get into all these things, and that's fine, but uh, imagine going to such a restaurant where they had this high standard of all these ingredients that they're pro uh, providing in your dish, but then as you sit down at your table, you notice that there's a trail of cockroaches going from, from your table to the kitchen back and forth. I mean, I don't care how organic the, the, the vegetables are or how, how pure and every, uh, everything else is in terms of the meat and everything. If that's what's going on in the restaurant, I'm not eating there. It's not enough to have good ingredients. You have to get rid of all the contagion of the cockroaches or whatever else might be crawling around on the ground. Both things have to be in place. Brethren, in order to speak the truth, we have to crush the contagion of deception and lies. Again, Zechariah chapter 8 enjoins us to speak the truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also let none of you devise evil in your own heart against one another and do not love, he says, sheker. Deception, bearing a false witness, for all these things are what I hate, God says. By the way, there aren't many occasions in which the Lord tells us what he hates, but we should really pay attention when God says, you know what, I hate this. I hate a deceptive tongue that spews lies and falsehood. When I first started out in the ministry, one of the first things I had to deal with, this was rather sad, we had in our women's ministry um, in the church one woman who was openly complaining about her husband at every meeting. 
And she did not just merely say, you know what, I, I've got problems in, a, in my marriage, could you pray for me? She would go into all kinds of details about what her husband was doing, was not doing, um, just carrying on and on and on about him. And that's bad enough, but it was made even worse by virtue of the fact that that man was the man, her husband, was in leadership. I ended up meeting with both the husband and the wife, and I addressed the things that were being said in the women's meeting. And as we talked about these things, it turned out that a lot of the things she said were exaggerated. Some of the things were true, don't get me wrong, but some of the things were exaggerated. But, and we understand the, the, the problem that happens when people are emotional, they tend to exaggerate things, right? We all have that frailty. But you know what was happening here? Because that woman was gossiping about her husband and slandering him, that ended up normalizing it with the other women. They began to say, see, think to themselves, well, that man's in leadership. This is his wife. So I guess this is normal conduct. No. The first thing I had to share with them is to say, listen, I don't, I don't deny that you have issues to work through, but let's have you two work through them and let me help you work through these issues. But you're not going to find a pathway to help and restoration and reconciliation by talking to everybody else in the church about your private problems. This is what we call gossip and slander. By the way, the foremost commandment, which we speak of often, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself also bears the idea in Leviticus 19 of forsaking falsehood, just like we've been reading in Zechariah 8 and Ephesians 4.25. So in other words, in order to love your neighbor, you're to put off these things. Leviticus 19, you shall not steal from your neighbor, nor deal falsely with your neighbor, nor lie to one another. Then in verse 16 it says, in order to love your neighbor, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. It's the same idea. If you're going to speak truth to one another, if you're going to love one another, that has to include this idea of mortifying falsehood, gossip, slander. So not only does God say that he hates those who bear false witness, but it says in Proverbs 6, there are six things which the Lord hates. Again, when God says that he hates something, we ought to pay attention to this. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed in innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Three of those on the list all have to do with the tongue. God seems to take this seriously, so should we. If we're going to be invested in telling the truth, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, then this must include this matter of mortifying falsehood. In fact, the Apostle Paul 
After saying, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, he then says in verse 29 of Ephesians 4, he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. What does that convey? That conveys the idea of thinking before speaking. Is this going to help this person? You may have an idea that comes to your brain, but that doesn't mean that you should speak it, especially if it's not going to produce edification and build up the other person. Only speak such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why not just say, just speak truth? They could have just said, just speak truth and everything will be fine. Because we're not sinless people, we still have to mortify the flesh and mortify falsehood. That's why. And it's not just in what is said. It's also in what we hear. Proverbs 17.4 says, An evildoer listens to wicked lips. It's not just wicked for a person to produce falsehood from their mouth, but it says an evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. These things must be mortified if we're to be a people who speak truth. What's remarkable about Zechariah 8 and the instructions given by Paul in Ephesians 4 is that we have in all these texts a very important instruction set about what it means to be a truth teller. Failure to mortify falsehood corrupts our worship before God. Thomas Watson says this, and how it is as the children of God, we ought to have a sensitivity to these matters, such that whenever the worship of God is corrupted or polluted, this should offend our souls. He says this, when a child of God sees his worship, the worship of God, adulterated and his truth mingled with the poison of air, it is as a sword in the bones to see his, the Lord's glory, suffer. Psalm 119 and verse 158 says, I beheld the transgressor, transgressors and was grieved. A child that has any good nature is cut to the heart to hear his father reproached. So an heir of heaven takes a dishonor done to God more heinous than a disgrace done to himself. He's right. A true child of God will be deeply invested in this manner of honoring and glorifying God. And brethren, this includes how we use our lips and yes, even our ears. When we see or hear falsehoods, gossip, slander, the bearing of false witness spreading within Christ's church, our own consciences should be deeply grieved and pierced. And if we're not, we should wonder why. We should never be comfortable with such things as failing to mortify falsehood. Finally, as an observation of all of this, think with me about the importance of our calling 
as members of Christ's body. We're to be truth tellers, we're to be forsaking falsehood, and we're to do so because we're members of one another in the body of Christ. We've already surveyed that a little bit. But brethren, understand this. We're members of one another in the body of Christ, but we have to remember one very important principle, and that is this. There is only one head of this body, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He bears supreme ownership and authority over the church. This is why we were talking about in the series on the church, it's his house, so we go by his rules. And we have to understand that he bears the authority that none of us share, ultimately, because he's the head of the church. In view of this, James warns the people of God about how they are to speak and use their mouths with reference to one another. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. You're placing yourself over God himself. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? That's God's prerogative alone. This is why I had to intervene and deal with the situation of this wife gossiping about her husband, slandering him. Um, I've heard the expression, uh, praying someone in the back. Sometimes prayer meetings, they can degrade into moments where really it becomes a place of gossip. It can't be this way. Nor can it be a situation where we exercise judgment against another person such that we speak against them in a denigrating manner. It must never be this way. When we went through our series on the church... We talked about this important principle of our being the pillar and support of the truth. And we talked about how it is that temples in that time, they would have a frieze, which is basically the portion of the temple that was just beneath the roof. And on that frieze, you would have this very elaborate, chiseled, in stone storyline that told you about the very deity that was memorialized in that temple. You walked around the entire building, you would see the story of that deity that was memorialized at that temple. For us, as the church, we're to be the pillar and support, not of mythology, but of the gospel, of the truth. We're the pillar and support of the truth. And in order to do that, we have to begin within the household of God as being a people who speak the truth to one another. If we fail here, we corrupt our witness before this lost and dying world. And so we need to be very, very concerned about and invested in this matter of how we use our mouths, our tongues, for the building up of Christ's body rather than its destruction. This is why you have these exhortations in scripture. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and building up of one another. Romans 14, 19. 
Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. Again, it's that idea of being thoughtful and mindful about how you speak and who you're speaking to. All of these are key principles, brethren. And I want to encourage you to excel still more in this matter of coming to church, having considered, having considered how to simulate one another to love and good deeds. How am I going to use my mouth? How am I going to use my tongue? How am I going to speak to another person such that I give them grace through the words that I'm sharing with them so as to build them up rather than tear them down? And think about it. How much time in the morning do you spend thinking about what you're going to wear or what you're going to have for lunch after church? Is it more time than you think about how you're going to talk to other people and what you need to say to other people to help them when you know that you have people who are struggling and suffering and they need a word of encouragement? Let us... Think more and more and more about how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, speaking truth to one another because we're members of one another. That's our privilege, brethren. That's our joy, to be a people who build one another up in Christ. At the end of the day, as we said before, there's only one head to the church, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege and priority to think about how to honor and please him in all respects. And someday he is coming again to bring his 